All right, guys. Uh, this is episode 001 with Peter Michael Bauer. Uh, but before I get to today's episode, I need to make a, a, a very quick announcement that um, less of an announcement, more of an apology to Peter, Frank, and Ben for how long it's taken me to initially get their episodes out. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, I was having technical difficulties and it was a lot more work. You know, I'm doing this all myself. So without anybody else's help, I'm learning new programs, uh, doing things I've never done before, uh, stepping far outside of my comfort zone. And uh, it was just kind of a lot. And I'm really embarrassed to say that it's taken me a long time to get these episodes out, uh, not only for you guys, but also for Peter, Frank, and Ben. So uh, to those guys, I'm again, I am so sorry. Again, I'm also extremely embarrassed that it's taken me this long. Um, and I, I hope that you don't think that I'm hoarding your knowledge because your knowledge is what I respect the most. So I want to get this out to you guys because they have a lot of great information. Um, specifically this episode, Peter, he goes into a lot of detail regarding different aspects of rewilding and civilization and things that I think you're going to find very interesting. So I just wanted to, you know, have, you know, just, just kind of say that before the episode began, because, you know, to be perfectly honest, I must say it, you know, it, it was difficult for me to put it all out there and get it all together the way that it is. So, um, I just want to say thank you to everyone who is listening right now. Um, I don't care whether, you know, it's my mom, uh, my grandmother, um, somebody I haven't met before, whoever it is. Um, I just want to, you know, just tell you that I'm very appreciative and I'm, I'm very, very, very grateful that you're listening. This is a very special episode. Not only is this the very first episode of Ancestral Health Radio with our very first guest, Peter Michael Bauer. Um, but Peter has been a huge inspiration on my own path towards rewilding, as I'm sure he will be for you. I hope to have Peter on future episodes of Ancestral Health Radio to discuss more of the topics that you're heal that excuse me that you will hear on today's show. And some of those topics will include why Peter re-released his old new book, Rewild or Die, the barriers that keep many of us from actually taking our rewilding practice to, the, to a whole new level, and what rewilding havens are and much, much more. So stay tuned, and uh, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Let me know how it went on the Facebook page, if you liked it, if you didn't like it, whatever it is, or you can, of course, leave us a five-star rating and review. <laughs> I don't mind that as well, but only if you think that I deserve it. Uh, again, uh, thank you guys. I appreciate it. Uh, again, this is uh, episode 001 of Ancestral Health Radio with Peter Michael Bauer. Ancestral Health Radio bridges the divide between our modern technology and inherent ancestral wisdom. Learn to align your genetic makeup for peak health, fitness, and longevity with actionable how-to advice from today's leaders in nutrition, movement, and lifestyle. Take a walk on the wild side. Peter is the executive director and instructional instructor for various programs, a fourth-generation Portlander. His first merit badge in the Boy Scouts was basketry. From there, he went on to receive his Eagle Scout rank. It was during his years camping during the Scouts that he began to yearn for a deeper connection to space, to place. 
At 16, he traveled across the United States to attend Tom Brown Jr.'s Tracker School and Wilderness Awareness School in Washington State, where he attended several Art of Mentoring work workshops. He has worked as an environmental educator for nearly every environmental education organization in Portland, including Cascadia Wild, Friends of the Tryon Creek, uh, Audubon, and Echoes in Time. He loves basketry, playing the banjo, and is a fluent speaker of Chinook Wawa. Am I saying that correctly, by the way? Yeah. Uh, the native trade language of the Pacific Northwest inherited language heritage language of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde. Ronde. Ronde, excuse me. <laughs> he is the founder of Rewild.com and author of Rewild and Die, Rewild or Die, excuse me, under the Monkier, Monkier <laughs> Urban Scout. During the summer of 2012, he attended Link's uh, Valden Stone Age Immersion Program, and I am very honored to have you on here. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Peter. Uh, and yeah, we're here to talk about your new book, Rewild or Die. And uh, I appreciate that. And it, let me just give the audience the exact, uh, exact what I thought of the book. And the book is uh, really good for people who are just coming into this, who need a new perspective on rewilding. It's not just about diet or exercise. It's kind of how we fit in as a species uh and different aspects of rewilding we can look at. So he covers a lot in here. And what we're going to just kind of talk about is a bunch of different aspects. Maybe things you didn't understand uh, from his term of rewilding to what civilization is. Uh, Peter, again, thank you for coming on. And I kind of wanted to start off with the question, uh, who is Urban Scout? <laughs> uh, yeah, so Urban Scout is or was um, a lot of things. It was kind of this uh, project that just continued to sort of morph and take different shapes as it progressed in time. Um, the, the term Urban Scout comes from Tom Brown Jr.'s book, The Way of the Scout, which uh, in there, there's a chapter where he lived in Central Park um, in the, like maybe the 80s or something briefly, as like a you know a survivalist like but but from the scout perspective of like staying invisible, um, and in that book he says something about like he being the first urban scout, um, and so that kind of you know for a lot of the tracker school students like me who lived in the city we would use that term pretty regularly for a lot of the stuff that we did um, in terms of like you know whatever just survival skills doing survival skills and things invisibly within the context of the urban environment. Um, and you know, a lot of that, what I would consider rewilding now, I don't really look at the same way as, um, survival skills, but there's definitely, you know, overlap there. And, um, and that was kind of where I got my start in terms of that stuff. So, you know, the, the word urban scout, the idea of being an urban scout was sort of this, um, uh, you know, tracker school shoot off or, or, you know, a variety of students who, didn't live in the country or the woods and wanted to practice these things, but in the city. Um, and, you know, me and my friends were, we like to joke around a lot, make fun of ourselves and stuff. And so we, uh, I ran this film screening and we were supposed to do a film about um, something about the future. I don't know. We had a theme. I can't even actually remember what the theme was now, but I wrote a monologue that was supposed to be, 
said over video of somebody dressed in a loincloth watching people walk around the city. And it was supposed to be uh, that this person was living in a post-apocalyptic world and they had gone back to the ruins of the city to watch the ghosts of their ancestors who didn't realize they were dead continue to like go through these daily routines. So the idea was going to be, you know, I was probably going to like make, you know, all of the people and the city black and white, but have the main character remain in color and have this monologue go over it. So it would make sense. They're like watching these people go to work and stuff that were really just the ghosts of their ancestors or something. Um, I don't even remember the monologue. I just remember the concept of it. Yeah. <laughs> because when we were filming it, the friend who I had, uh, shoot the video portion for me was like, Hey, why don't you go to this coffee shop and buy a cup of coffee? It'd be funny. Cause I'm dressed in a loincloth covered in mud, you know? And, uh, and I'm like, no, that doesn't really fit well with the, um, with the, the, the film, you know, the idea is that these people are dead, so I can't interact with them. And he was like, yeah, yeah, well, it'll just be funny. It'll be like something else, you know? And, um, so eventually he convinced me he was very <laughs> persuasive and, uh, I went to this coffee shop, bought a cup of coffee, went outside, sat down, started drinking it. And he filmed the whole thing, uh, almost like dogma style of documentary or whatever, you know, and we cut it together and it just looked really funny because nobody, I mean, it was Portland. This was like 2003, I want to say. And, uh, like probably, yeah, late summer 2003 and nobody batted an eye when, you know, they saw somebody walking around in a loincloth. Um, so he titled the, the short film Urban Scout, and we showed it to this audience that was like, wow, this is, a, this is hilarious. We want to see more of this character. So him and I sat down and we wrote um, like 15 different shorts, um, and then it just kind of uh, – we didn't end up shooting any of those because he was going to school, and I was I, – I went to a film school here in Portland – and took a screenwriting class where I compiled all the shorts and then I ended up writing, rewriting it so many times that it was just kind of, I wrote out most of them. And, um, and we ended up shooting this film the next summer called the adventures of urban scout. Okay. Um, and it's a short film. I'll send you, you, it's kind of, um, it's, it's unlisted on YouTube now, so I can, <laughs> I can send you a short video. Um, I was going to say, is it, is it, available can we can we actually put that in the show notes for people to see yeah, uh, yeah i'll give it to you for the show notes because it's pretty funny but um it's old you know it's from 2004 now but when we were filming that i was walking around town just in character a lot um because we thought we would build buzz for the movie if i just was like you know creating this sort of persona that people were seeing and then talking about so i started putting on this loincloth walking around and you know through town and uh, just by myself and people would be like, who are you? And I would, you know, introduce myself as urban scout. And I created a MySpace page for urban scout and a face, uh, you know, back then it was friendster and, and MySpace. Um, and you know, people started eventually, even when I wasn't in costume or character, people started just calling me urban scout. I would meet people and then be like, Hey, you look familiar. And I'm, and they're like, Oh, are you urban scout? You know, that kind of thing. And so I'd, it ended up kind of turning into this sort of alter ego thing. Right. Uh, and then one day I was walking down the street and a guy pulls his car over. I'm in my loincloth and everything. This guy pulls his car over 
like runs up to me and he's like, what are you, what's going on? What are, what are you, why are you dressed like this? You know? And I, of course I was in character. So I'm like, I'm urban scout. I, you know, I'm a hunter gatherer. I live in the city and uh, I practice preemptive post-apocalyptic anarcho neo paleoism. Uh, that was before we had the word rewilding. <laughs> oh, of course that, that was uh, not super easy to say. I'm sure. Yeah. Part of, you know, again, that was part of the comedy of the character was, you know, just these silly, uh, the silly aspects of it. Um, but the guy was like so excited because he really believed my story and he wanted me to like teach him and, and stuff. And, you know, I just kept, I stayed in character and he was so stoked when he drove away. He was just like, you know, I could tell he was like really inspired. And I got this like sinking feeling in my gut, you know, like, Oh man, I, I, this is I, like, I want to live like how this guy thinks I'm living. Cause I feel like I'm that guy, you know, like, I would be really inspired if I met somebody who's actually doing this to this extent, you know, and had it down to the point where they could survive this way. Um, and at that point I decided I was just going to drop everything and try to actually live like a, a urban hunter gatherer as much as I perceived that at the time, how I perceived that at the time. Um, and that's when I created my blog, the adventures of urban scout. And I kind of took on the persona and, um, I tried to kind of live as Urban Scout very briefly because it failed very quickly um, once I realized how much I didn't know and how difficult it would be to actually live this way, first of all, just in the modern context, in the urban context, and then without a, what I would call a tribe or a group of people um, who were collectively making a living together. Um, it was just near impossible and I realized that the only way I was going to uh, create that for myself was if I started to essentially, you know, write articles about rewilding and try to promote this idea. And so as soon as I had my blog, um, I began immediately writing about rewilding, trying to get people to kind of um, join in and, and do more rewilding and, um, over the span of that was in 2006. So my book was near completed in 2008 and I ended up kind of editing it and adding a little bit of stuff the next two years. And then, um, the book was a compilation of all of the blogs that I wrote. So it's definitely like, it's not a book book. It's more of like a, a collection of blogs. So it has like a, almost a conversational style in a lot of them. Um, and as well as the the voice of Urban Scout is very different than uh, my voice. Um, Urban Scout, I in my in my mind is like this this particular muse that mm -hmm. um, it's almost like Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. It's kind of how I perceive it. It's almost like an alternate personality for me, um, and it really has to do with like being really caffeinated on Stumptown Coffee. And really angry and a little hangry. Angry. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and kind of hearing this other voice that was just really upset with um, the way the world was going and, and the way things are going still. Um, and so there, in a sense, it, he, was, he was very confrontational of a muse. And... Um, when I went on my book tour in 2011, uh, some haters actually found where I was going to be doing my reading and destroyed my car. 
Um, oh, no. <laughs> and at that point, I was like, oh, wow. You know, like, this isn't really... You're making an impact. <laughs> so it sounds like, <laughs> yeah. like wow, okay, you, you've actually upset enough people. You know, I think you, you polarized yourself in the right kind of way that you were making an impact where some people were disagreeing and getting so upset about it that they actually took it to that level. That's That's interesting. Yeah. But I mean, at the same time, I was like, wow, is this the impact I want to be having? Right. You know, is there a way that I can approach this in a manner that will be more broadly appealing so I'm not insulting as many people or, or inciting people to violence in that regard? Um, and that was when I, that was 2011, and, and I pretty much had already kind of started to back off from blogging at that point anyway. Um, but that was kind of the nail in the coffin for me was the the book tour. And I, I put urban scout away for good. And I decided, I realized anyway, you know, also in 2006, I created rewild.com, which is a an international online forum to discuss rewilding. And, uh, it had its heyday probably in 2008, 2009 when there was um, the majority of use. And now it's just like, it's more light conversation and the format is different. We've, you know, we used to be simple machines. Now we're, uh, discourse or something like that. Um, so, you know, it's still a, a beautiful archive of discussions from all the way back to 2006 of rewilding. So it's really cool. You know, looking up any topic to see if people have discussed it in terms of rewilding for go to rewild.com, click on join the discussions and then just search for it because I mean, it's over a decade now of conversations about rewilding. So it's a really great resource. Um, and there's still people using it. It's just not as heavily used as before. And it, I, there's an uptick now in usage because of um, probably people like Daniel Vitalis who are appealing to a larger crowd in a different particular way. And so I think that's bringing in a lot of people into rewilding um, from one avenue. And then because that is a very big avenue, right now it's making the the sort of other foundations of rewilding grow as well, which I think is fantastic. Um, and, uh, so anyway, that I had created that forum thinking, you know, again, my whole thing is I want a group of people who I can go and try to rewild with to the fullest extent possible. Um, and so I thought if I wrote blogs and convinced people, and if I created this forum that would convince people, but, by the end of the decade, uh, and I had this book published, I still didn't have a group of people in Portland to do rewilding stuff with. Um, and that's when I decided to turn things around and really focus on local efforts. So I created Rewild Portland, which is a nonprofit organization, and we teach ancestral skills, we teach wild foods, we teach cultural elements, um, just kind of everything rewilding we do. And I wanted to make it accessible to everybody. So we actually started out doing a free Skillshare on the last Saturday of every month. And we still do that. Uh, that's kind of our, one of our biggest programs. We have like, you know, 85 people plus coming each month now. Um, it's almost getting out of hand actually. Oh, wow. So, uh, but yeah, it's great. And, you know, uh, I feel like all, I have a saying, all roads lead to rewilding. It's one of my favorite ideas as, you know, if you think about it, everybody 
who's interested in anything that's kind of nature related or ancestral related, if they take it far enough, they'll find rewilding because it's the most DIY. It's the most, uh, you know, local. It's the most, so like if you're a locavore, you know, what's the best way to be a locavore is to, uh, eat wild food. And then if you're going to be harvesting wild food, how do you manage wild food? Well, we're going to tend the wild the way the Chinook and Kalapuya people did for 10,000 years here, you know, because it's a regenerative system. What we have now isn't. So if we want to do this into perpetuity, we're going to have to uh, bring back those regenerative systems that were here. And I think that's kind of across the board. And then you come at it from the diet angle. If you're, if you're feeling unhealthy, uh, you know, the best way to do it is to look at your DNA and your evolution and what, are we designed to eat and what makes us feel the best? And of course that's going to be local, organic, etc., etc. And then if you really want to do that, you're going to end up tending the wild also. Uh, but then there's even like marginalization, which is actually kind of the avenue that I'm coming into now, which is um, trying to make rewilding accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, people who live on the fringes of civilization because they've been marginalized by it also are looking for alternative ways of life and often look to the past before mass culture and those kinds of things. And we see, you know, humans were a lot more egalitarian. So how do we and, you know, gender fluidity was an acceptable thing. Um, uh, so, you know, there's all these different, all roads lead to rewilding, really, if you take them all to their furthest um, possible extension. And I think that that's kind of one of the things that I think will make rewilding stick is because it is a, uh, you know, a co uh, it's all these different things coalesced, you know, it's, it's a, a vision that every vision leads to if it's gone to the full extent that's possible. Um, the only thing that stands in the way of getting to rewilding from something else are cultural barriers, right. which is a huge thing. But um, It's funny because I, I think of that as, as if we're in the movie The Matrix. You know, like mm -hmm. you, for example, are Morpheus and I am Neo. <laughs> you know, and, and you're giving, there, there's just another option. We all have that feeling, you know, we have that answer within us. Yeah. We know it's there, but you know, because of society, the way that it, it's, it's been built around us, you know, we don't have an opportunity to see, to see beyond that veil unless of course we take one of those avenues, right. That you were talking about. And I, I think that's one of the biggest things that I love trying to describe to people is, you know, it is like the matrix or, you know, how some people say, you know, rewilding, you know, what does that even mean? You know, how, what, what is rewilding exactly? And right. I think you have a, a pretty good definition in the book that I, I did a little meme of that, yeah. <laughs> that was, uh, that went pretty well. Uh, do you know that off the top of your head by chance? Uh, it's something along the lines of, no, I don't. <laughs> okay. Well, I got it right here in let front me of see, me. Let me see. Let me see if I can do it. Um, uh, no, I can't. <laughs> That's okay. I got it. So you, you describe rewild as a verb to foster and maintain a sustainable way of life through hunter, gatherer, gardener, social and economic systems, including, but not limited to the encouragement of social, physical, spiritual, mental, and environmental biodiversity and the prevention 
and undoing of social, physical, spiritual, mental, and environmental domestication and enslavement. So that covers a lot right there. <laughs> yes, kind of a mouthful. That's why nobody really liked that one that much. But, you know, I was trying to get at all the various aspects of rewilding because, you know, if just a regular person hears rewilding, they think, oh, like going out in nature, but they haven't identified, like, you know, what do we mean when we say wild versus domestic? What are our, you know, connotations of wild that are not true? For example, the idea of wilderness as untouched by humans is completely untrue. So, you know, you have rewilding conservationists who want to create big swaths of land where no people go, or maybe there's like ecotourism, but they don't have this concept of tending the wild that Native Americans and most indigenous people around the world do, which is, you know, humans impact the environment no matter what. So how do we make our impact uh, a resilient impact instead of a destructive one? You know, and that's something that humans are constantly having to relearn and refigure out, even indigenous cultures. It's a constant conversation with the land. Um, how, what's our impact and how, how can we make it more beneficial? Or you know, how do we create more biodiversity through our impact instead of less? Um, and so, you know, but then at the same time, that definition also doesn't talk about the social injustice of hierarchy and slavery and racism and classism and just all the different um, elements of prejudice. And, uh, you know, that's why you could come to rewilding and not have any idea that part of it is like the dismantling of civilization. Right. You know, and, that, and that's something that forcing us at gunpoint, literally, whether you see the gun or not, whether it's visible or not to destroy the planet. So, you know, we can't just, if you want to rewild, you can't just sit idly by and watch the destruction of the planet unfold in front of us. We have to actively uh, try to stop the hierarchy from destroying the planet. Right. And that's, that's a huge part of the awareness of, of rewilding. And I think it's one of the aspects that isn't actually, uh, it's not talked about a lot, you know, so, so you brought up Daniel Vitalis, you know, you don't hear a lot of him bringing up the word anarchy, for example. You know, because I feel like a lot of people, they have a, the wrong idea about that word. And it conjures up ideas of like an angsty 14-year-old punk kid, you know. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, the more I get into this, the more I'm starting to realize just naturally, wow, I, am I really, I guess I am kind of siding on that side of anarchism, I guess you could say. But you, <laughs> you named it something else earlier. You said it was, uh, and it's a mouthful, primitive or arco-primitive how do you say that word again? Primitivism. And can you go a little bit deeper into that and maybe dispel the myth that's around uh, that word and kind of break that down for people that don't quite understand? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so anarchy, in just a general, in a, in a general way, anarchy just means a stateless, uh, self-governed people. So, uh, it doesn't mean no boundaries. It doesn't mean no social taboos. It means no state government. So, uh, you know, what you have is autonomous collectives of people who make decisions together. And, you know, that could be hierarchical in some ways. Uh, I might get, you know, somebody, some people are going to not agree with that. Um, but so long as everybody kind of agrees with the system that's going on in a way, um, statelessness is kind of the general idea of anarchy. I'm not super familiar with 
all of, uh, you know, the history of anarchism and, and the difference between anarchy and anarchism. So I can't speak to that fully. And if I did, I would butcher it. And then I would piss off a lot of my friends. So, um, <laughs> for me, I consider myself an anarchist in that I believe that there should not be a state government at the same time. There is one. So, you know, uh, I can, it's not going to be dismantled overnight. It's right. not going to be voted out of existence, but, um, I can still, it's like being in prison and not agreeing with the prison system. Right. It's, it's kind of like being trapped in the matrix and knowing that you're there. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but there's not a lot you can do to get yourself out. Yeah. Um, where, where's the red, red pill, right? Like I, I want, yeah, right, I want that. Exactly. So, exactly. And, and that's um, super interesting. And, um, but anarcho, let me speak to anarcho primitivism specifically because the main idea of anarcho primitivism is that, uh, Anarchy, if it really means a stateless, autonomous group of people working together, making decisions together about things, then if we look at quote-unquote prehistoric or quote-unquote primitive cultures, then we see that that's how they governed themselves. Right. Um, was through anarchy. So, if you, again, all paths lead to rewilding. If you're really an anarchist and you're going to go full-on and you really want to have an autonomous collective of people than rewilding, you know, because we're going to go back to this ancestral way of life or go, you know, maybe not go back, go forward or just go into, or, you know, transform into this thing. I hate, I hate this linear progression. It's like, we can't even have a conversation without talking about going back or forward. It's like, no, we're going to, we're just going to transform into something else, you know, and it will probably look a lot like the way that it did in this other era. And that's and that's what I like about your book too is that you try to make that distinction. You know, it's it's uh, we're we're trying to build a new culture. You know, we're not trying to find a new diet. You know, or a new way to move. We're trying to find a new way to live. You know, right. and that's a, a huge part of it. And I think it's really hard to talk about that too. You know, when I when I'm trying to describe rewilding to other people, because they think that I want to go live in a cave. You know, I want to just. I want to eat, you know, bison right. all day. No, that's that's not at all what I'm trying to get at. I'm just trying to give people or at least show people a different perspective on how how rewilding affects your life today. And maybe not go back as far, but like you said, maybe look at some of the cultures, uh, Native American cultures specifically, before the Europeans arrived. How were they living to exactly tend the wild? How, how were we living to live in a sustainable way. You know, that's, that's one of the biggest things is when you start looking at culture, you realize, and I think almost everybody realizes this now that it's not sustainable. So how far do we need to go back before civilization to find where that happy medium is? Exactly. And, um, what, what have you found? Like how far do we need to go back? Well, I don't know because the, Again, the world is different now. Um, we can't go back to the way the world was 5,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago. The climate was completely different. Think about this, okay? This is something that I say. I'm teaching a class on prehistory right now through the Portland Underground Graduate School. And I'm, one of our things is, think, I just want people to think about this. At the same time, Bootsy, the Iceman, who was you know, 5,000 years ago, died in the Alps. There were woolly mammoths living right here where I'm standing. Right. That's 
only 5,000 years ago. Yeah. The megafauna extinctions of the last 90,000 years are really, 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 really recent. And all of the ecosystems that we've been a part of had those animals in them as they were declining due to, you know, climate change as well as human predation and other transformations of ecosystems. Um, and to think that the way of life that we had 10,000 years ago is is something that we can replicate um, in the modern era, I don't think is, I don't think is possible. Uh, I don't think it's possible. I think that it, what we have to do is look at those things, realize what makes us human and then try to put those things into place. Um, you know, I, I don't think that hierarchical civilization is going to last very much longer. So what will, whatever will come out of this thing will probably match the way we're designed a little bit more if we survive it. Okay. Um, so I don't think there's like a specific, you know, this is actually the theme of, I'm, I'm running a, a rewilding conference next October, a year from now. And the theme is going to be restoration to what? So it's this exact question. It's what are we actually trying to restore? Is it like an ideal time? Is it an ideal uh, habitat? Is it an ideal social structure? Like what is it and how do we make that happen and why? Because that's really, that's kind of the deepest question I think in rewilding is, Restoration to what? Because if we're returning to the wild, what does that mean? And where does that, where do we want to go with that? You know? Um, and it's not a question that I don't think anybody will ever be able to answer. I think it's something that people will look back on if we still have, uh, you know, oral tradition or uh, a way of linear, linearly talking about this in a thousand years if humans are alive they will have rewilded and will be living in a completely different way than we can even fathom right now, but it will be in a way that's more in line with our biology and the earth because, <laughs> and if it isn't, our biology will have to obviously change to match whatever that life way is. Um, and I think there's a constant interplay between that, you know, for example, I'm less lactose intolerant than other people, uh, because, uh, I eat dairy you know, and I have ancestors who've been eating dairy for a couple thousand years. So, you know, we can see that humans are adaptable, both, both evolutionarily and culturally and environmentally. So we have to, and, you know, all those things play together. Um, so on some level for me, it's not uh, necessarily returning back fully to something as much as it is looking at what makes me feel good and alive and human and how do I benefit I, I want to live in a way that benefits the ecosystems. That, that, that's kind of the bottom line. Because if you don't, then you die out. And because I'm a human, I care about the survival of humanity uh, just in that I'm a human. <laughs> right. So you're, basically what you're telling me is you're, you're trying to fit back into the ecosystem as much as humanly possible. Right. Where, and where, so that's, where, you know, if we're looking at restoration to what? Restoration to a regenerative way of life for humans that doesn't completely fuck up the ecosystem. That's what we want to restore. Right. What does that look like? Where do we begin? Right. 
You know, you know I mean, I, for me, beginning, everybody comes to rewilding from all these different avenues. So you have to begin with what inspires you the most and then follow that rabbit hole, you know? And I see right now big, the big push is these people are coming to rewilding from the paleo diet. So they're following that rabbit hole of ancestral health, you know, like your blog or uh, sorry, like this radio show It's in that kind of avenue. It's coming in from that direction. So you get to paleo diet and you're like, okay, well now, you know, I'm, I'm paleo, but I'm kind of pan paleo. I'm like, I'm like globalization paleo. You know, I'm still, I'm buying bananas uh, from grocery store that are 3000 miles away. Right. Blah, blah. And you're like, okay, that's not necessarily paleo because you realize there was a diversity of paleo diets. Absolutely. And then yeah. you're like, okay, so now you have the choice. What was the paleo diet of my ancestors? But then we're an amalgam of different ancestors from all over the world. So then you're like, okay, well, I'm, What's, what was the paleo diet of the place where I live now, historically, or pre-contact? And then you start foraging, right, and wild mm -hmm. food gathering. And then that rabbit hole leads you to tending the wild. Because if you're foraging and you're depleting resources, or the, you know foraging is becoming so popular that it's really difficult to find certain plants, you're like, okay, well, what do I do now? What's the next step? Well, the next step is tending the wild. So then you're like, oh, I'm going to research Native American stuff and Native American land management practices. And then you get into that and you start to learn these things, but then you realize that they're illegal. <laughs> and now you realize that you know we, a lot of this knowledge is locked up because Native Americans aren't allowed to practice it. So now you're getting into the social justice aspects of rewilding and taxation and privilege and all these other things. So, you know, I mean, again, if you just keep going down the rabbit hole, in my mind, it all comes back to social justice because the social justice it is essentially trying to break down the barriers that are in place to prevent us from fully rewilding, which is hierarchy, civilization, taxation, militarization, and the state. Yeah. And I, I love how you talk about civilization in the book too, and how you kind of break it down. And uh, for those of you who are going to get the book, you'll notice that a lot of the chapters are really small. There'll be maybe one, two, three pages. However, you will get a couple chapters where they are maybe, you know, five to 10 pages, you know, and he, he's got a really interesting way of talking about, uh, civilization and how people really just don't understand what civilization is. You know, I don't think they've got a correct understanding of that either. And before you get into that, I, I something I always find funny and I notice about, people who are getting into rewilding or have been around it for a while, they've got a really good grasp of the English language. Okay. So they know the Latin terms. They know exactly, you know, how to talk about them in a way that kind of deconstructs the word so that you can understand it far better. So the word domestication, you know, of the house domesticate, all those kind of things. It's really interesting to me because when you break down some of these words, it kind of, it, it removes this, the illusion of the word. You know, because I think you hear some words all the time and you don't really realize what they mean. And um, I, I just wanted to put that little bit in that I thought that was really interesting. And then maybe you could tell us about, you know, what what is your idea of civilization or how did you get to the that idea of civilization that you write about in the book? Yeah. So most people equate the word civilization with civil society, but that's not the meaning of the word. If you look it up in the dictionary, it, it refers to an advanced state of culture, which by advanced means uh, 
more complex socially, economically, and um, artistically, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, if you read between the lines, what it says is civilization is a system of hierarchy and resource, resource ex exploitation um, to produce crafts and you know, to produce technology and these things that we're calling advanced. But if you look at how civilization has degraded, uh, degraded the environment, then it's what's more advanced, a system that has been around for three million years or one that's destroying the planet only after a few thousand. Um, so, of course, it's a, you know, the dictionary is written by conquerors. Conquerors write their own story. And the story of civilization is that it's awesome, mm. even though it's destroying the planet at an accelerating rate. Mm -hmm. So if we want to really look at what is civilization, uh, for me, I look at civilization as uh, an ecological phenomenon. And what I mean by that is culture is, you know, the totality of human interactions and what we pass on from one generation to the next. Uh, and if we look at ourselves as elements of nature, if we look at culture as an element of nature, because it is, um, it's a, you know, culture is the summation or summation of human interaction within an ecosystem, because that's the boundaries of our existence and how we interact with everything. Uh, it's weird to even separate those in concept in my mind. But so if we're looking at civilization, I consider it a force of nature, just like every animal, every autonomous animal is its own force of nature. Okay. Even domesticated animals are their own force of nature. We're just forcing our own, uh, you know, we're exerting control over those elements of nature that we can control that we can put a fence around. But, you know, we can't control a forest fire. We can't control meteors that are going to hit the planet. We can't control the tectonic plates. We can't control uh, earthquakes and volcanic eruptions and oceans and all those kinds of things. Right. You know, we, we're just starting to figure out how to try to manipulate the weather, you know. But the more that we control, the more we fuck things up. Right. And that's kind of the thing that people just don't realize. What we need to do is downgrade, relinquish control, and let nature and figure out how to work with nature instead of control it. And that's what hunter-gatherers and horticulturalists have done for three million years. So, um, but if we, again, coming back to civilization, if civilization is a force of nature. And I look at, you know, take a bird's eye view, back up, look at the globe, and look at how civilization is moving across the planet. It's a force of nature not dissimilar to a wildfire. Everywhere it goes... It's destroying soil, it's deforesting a region, uh, and it's destroying biodiversity. If we look at human bodies as the product of civilization, then what it's doing is we're just consuming, uh, Daniel Quinn has this line, I think it's, we're converting biomass into human mass. Hmm. So uh, we're destroying the planet to just produce more human bodies. And I don't think it's anything that's necessarily within the control of even individual humans. I think that we collectively act as a force of nature. And right now we have these ideas about the planet that are making us make decisions about how to interact with the planet that are in a destructive way. And we don't necessarily even have control over that because what we have, 
the choices that we have are so limited from our perspective. You know, if all you're ever shown is Coke and Pepsi and you don't know there's water or other options to drink, but those are your only two choices, you're going to pick one of them, even though they're the same fucking thing. Exactly. So that's kind of what's happening right now is that we have these massive cultural blinders on. And if you think of culture uh, as artificial intelligence in a way, that it wants to keep itself alive. Ideas want to keep themselves alive, just like a gene, right? So looking at like memetics or whatever, you know, like genes want to stay alive, memes want to stay alive. So they're, they have, you know, elements of defense, elements to keep themselves going. And I think that's basically what we're stuck in is we're just kind of, I don't want to say robots, I hate that, but we're captives in a way of this mythological or mimetic system that is civilization and this is kind of the blueprints of it of how it works but if we're looking at it as a force of nature i would consider it an un, a natural disaster in that way because it is natural i mean it did happen on the planet and we're a part of natural systems so it might be destroying the, the basis of life here but so does a comet so does a volcanic eruption so does a forest fire um now just a biological entity that's creating those that that destructive force on a massive scale um and of course it's more like a cybernetic thing because we're doing it with machines but um if we look at to me civilization is a force of nature and it has some workings that make it happen and we've seen it happen around the planet in several areas where it came about through agriculture um and then eventually that leads to population growth and sedentism and hierarchy that creates civilization. So you have, you know, by definition in the dictionary, civilization is an advanced state of culture um, or, or, you know, with meaning a complex social structure, meaning slavery, meaning hierarchy. Um, and you only really get that kind of system if you're sedentary with a surplus of food, which means agriculture. Uh, and so they all kind of coalesce. They create civilization. And eventually, agriculture and hierarchy and overpopulation deplete an ecosystem and the whole thing collapses um, and is left to regrow. So if you're looking at it um, from that perspective, to me, there's not a lot we can do to stop civilization because it's a forest fire. Right. Now... Hey guys, real quick, after listening to this episode, I need you to answer two important questions for me. Number one, what is your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health and or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? What websites, blogs, or people online do you follow? That's it. So again, number one, what's your biggest frustration when it comes to ancestral health or rewilding? And number two, where do you go to get your information? By answering these two questions, you help me create the content I know you not only want, but need. So again, guys, thank you. That's it. I super appreciate it. You can email me your answers after the show at james at ancestralhealthradio.com. There are forest fires that you can um, prevent. There are forest fires that you can fight by cutting fire lines and try to direct and try to diminish so there's all kinds of things that you can do to uh, decrease the effects of a forest fire. Um, and that's kind of where I'm looking at with how we could not necessarily stop civilization, but decrease its effects and then 
put out that fire once it reaches the point of diminishing returns. Because once a forest fire is burning the maximum amount of fuel that it could burn that's available, as soon as it hits that point, it's just like a regular fire. You know, you stack a whole bunch of wood on a fire, it burns for a long time. Once it reaches the maximum amount of fuel being burned, then mm-hmm. it starts to decrease. Then it becomes really easy to put out a fire because there's not enough fuel for it to continue burning. Right. So if we're looking at civilization in that manner, what we have to pay attention to is, you know, where can we cut fire lines metaphorically? And then when does it hit the point of diminishing returns? And then what can we do to put out the fire as it's decreasing? And that's kind of where rewilding comes in. Right? Yes. So that's, and that's, I think of rewilding as kind of like a, a preventative. You know, you're learning these rewilding skills because that's, uh, or, or this, it's not skills. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a culture, right? right? You know, it's, it's trying to not separate things from the whole, you know, rewilding isn't, isn't built up of little categories. It's this whole picture that everybody needs to get that kind of idea of. And that's, that's what your book really helps, you know, really kind of puts out for everybody is it gives, and I think that was the main idea, right? You want, you were like, okay, I want to show people that there's a a lot of different areas to rewilding and it's not just a single single aspect. And that's, that's really what I like about this because it is so many different. And I didn't, you know, I didn't know that it was a, excuse me if you said it in the book, but I didn't realize it was a culmination of all the, uh, the blog posts that you had done on urban scout. So that's really interesting too. But, um, you've got some funny things in here too, like, uh, like hipsters versus rewilding, you know, or video games versus rewilding, which I really connected with because that was my childhood too. Um, I mean, I guess where I want to go with this is how do people, I mean, if all avenues come to rewilding, we're all going to get there at some point or another, you know, how do we go about talking about it in a way that we can, uh, that doesn't turn people off, you know, Um, but how am I trying to say it? I want to be able to talk about rewilding and have people get it, you know, like I get it. It's just so hard for people to, to understand. It's, I, I keep relating it back to the matrix because the people that are in our system, they will fight exactly for that system because they don't understand because it comes off on, on such this extreme. And that's the type of person that I am. I, I tend to gravitate towards these extremes and immerse myself in these things. And it's hard for people to kind of understand where I'm coming from. And I feel, I feel like urban scout, you know, where I'm just learning about this and I'm, you know, in order to have a voice, you get kind of angry, you get a little angsty, right? And you want to kind of have your word spoken. And especially about something that you're so passionate about, such as rewilding, because you see, it's, it's almost like you kind of have a premonition because you start learning about the history and the prehistory and you understand that it is not sustainable. It's just, it is almost a fact. You come to it at this point where I just feel this is it. Okay, well, we obviously need to start acting or mobilizing how do we start building these, um, you call them rewilding havens, I believe in the book. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I, I'm really interested in how I can build my own personal tribe here in San Jose so that we can start doing this together like you're doing it in Portland. You know, how does somebody go about building a rewilding haven or, or, or starting to find people or, or how do we, how do we begin this kind of process? So yeah, the idea of, a rewilding Haven. This was something that uh, Willem Larson uh, 
author of the College of Mythic Cartography, also a, a popular rewilding um, blog and book series. Um, he came up with this idea of rewilding havens, which is, um, you know, kind of like an eco-village in a way, but like not that, <laughs> the rewilding version of like an eco-village um, where you have these clusters of rewilders and also um, that can kind of come in and out and live almost like migratorily. Um, and it, it goes along with this idea of the hoop and hoop culture, which isn't really in my book at all, but is a huge influence on rewilding and something that um, I think is kind of the ultimate, ultimate rewilding is, is hoop culture and hoop culture would have lots of rewilding havens as like base camps. But all, all, hoop culture is essentially, um, it's a great basin nomadic tradition. Um, the Shoshone, Nez Pierce, uh, Paiute, a lot of the tribes in the Great Basin area lived on seasonal hoops. So uh, huge, huge, huge figure eight and, and, and large circle patterns in the landscape. And historically, they went from garden to garden on these hoops. Mm. So, you know, food forest to food forest all throughout the Great Basin. And I was introduced to hoop culture through Phoenicia Madrano, who is um, a transgender woman who lives in eastern Oregon and has been living on her own hoop sort of solo and with the collective for, who knows now, two decades probably. Mm -hmm. um, and she really brought the hoop culture idea to the rewilding scene. And, um, and so the rewilding haven is essentially like a step in the direction of hoop culture, because if we have rewilding havens set up, that's giving us base camps and, and gardens along a, along part of the hoop. Does that make sense? So a migratory circuit, um, with food at each, at each stop. So along it's the way almost kind of like base camps in a way. Yeah, exactly. And That's exactly base camps set up along a specific migratory path and you follow this yearly, seasonally rather. Yeah. And I mean, this is, you know, that that's the idea of migratory hunter-gatherers. Um, that's not necessarily horticulture because horticulture is more, is sort of semi-sedentary. Um, and to me, that's more of like the eco-villagey, rewild haven kind of transition. Um, it's more accessible, I think, to a lot of people because we live in a sedentary culture and people are used to that uh, because transportation is difficult um, and expensive, etc. cetera. Uh, but, you know, I mean, there's, to me, rewilding is this spectrum. And on one end, you have somebody living, like, in an apartment high-rise in the middle of a metropolis, you know. And on the other end, you have people living on these seasonal circuits that are tending the wild migratory hunter gatherers. Mm -hmm. So how do we get from point A to point B? And that's not necessarily something that's accessible to anyone really, uh, because we're all captives of civilization. So the idea of being able to do that isn't possible. And while some individuals might be able to make that happen for themselves, it's not something that is collectively possible. There are legalities that prevent it from happening. There are cultural barriers that prevent it from happening, you know, uh, psychological, social, et cetera, et cetera, that prevent that kind of rewilding from happening. So for me to 
really get to the bottom of all of it, again, it, it just keeps coming back to social justice because we have to figure out what people's barriers are that are preventing them from rewilding to the next level for themselves. You know, say you say you're doing paleo uh, and you want to take it to one next step and go local and, you know, but you can't afford, uh, you don't have a freezer, a chest freezer to like keep, you know, grass fed, uh, an entire grass fed beef in while you're, you know, doing this thing. So, you know, how do you, what's the barrier there? Is it an economic barrier? Why is it an, an economic barrier? How can you work collectively to dismantle that barrier? Um, you know, every, and then maybe it's not, maybe it's way, maybe you're way further along in a spectrum and you're thinking, how do I, uh, I want to buy land. I want to tend my land. Maybe you already have land. You want to tend it. Maybe you own a house and you're thinking about how you're going to, do you want to grow native plants? Do you want to grow other kinds of plants? You know, um, or maybe you're an African American who is afraid to go into rural country because of racism. You know, that's a massive barrier right there. And as a white person with white privilege, it's not something that I would ever even think about because I don't ever have that fear going into rural areas where I'm thinking that my race is going to somehow endanger my life. So as a ally to African-Americans, how do I do what I can to break down those barriers to make it more accessible for more people? And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is that in order for rewilding to really take off, it has to be accessible to the largest number of people possible. And the things that are preventing that from happening are barriers. And there's social barriers, there's economic barriers that's related to social barriers. So how do we start to break those down? How do we work collectively to dismantle that? Um, and that's like, that's where I'm at right now. Those are the questions that I'm asking. Um, and those are the questions that we're asking on the Rewild Forum and on the Rewild.com Facebook Forum. And here in, in at Rewild Portland, you know, all of those things. The the, the Rewild.com is kind of the the macro, you know, the larger lens, mm -hmm. and Wild Portland is my micro. And so I'm I'm trying to use both of those to leverage it so that people are starting their own rewilding groups in their own towns and thinking about this social justice aspect issue because we want to bring rewilding to everyone. So how do we make that possible? And we bring it to everyone by figuring out how to do it on a local level, bringing it to everybody that's within our local area. I love that. Um, so, you know, there's this play of like micro macro because we're, you know, the think tank of people all across the country and the way we can access information right now and talk to each other from, you know, really far away places is highly affecting how we're doing things on a local level. Um, so yeah, right now, you know, Rewild Portland is, uh, we're doing our fundraiser. I just want to throw that out there. Our, uh, and if you want to learn more about what we're doing on a local level, I recommend going to our website, rewildportland.com. And if you have a little bit of extra cash, it'd be great to get a donation because this is the kind of stuff that we're doing to set an example and show people everywhere else how they can replicate this to make a rewilding community. And I think that's sort of the thing that's, you know, as broadly appealing as a lot of the, the paleo stuff is, it's bringing in a lot more people. It's not making this leap from rewilding being a singular activity to being a collective and community activity. Um, you know, it's, it's something that you, it's like a diet that you do on your own. It's not like a way of life 
for a group of people. And so that's where okay. I, I would really like people to get further down the rewilding rabbit hole and reach that point where they realize in order to make this a reality, they have to create a community within the context of their life so that it's not just them doing something singularly because we're not singular creatures. We're a collective. Right. And, uh, you know, so anyway, that's what I'm trying to do with rewilding at the moment is figure out how to break down those barriers, both on a larger and smaller level, global, local, um, and Rewild Portland is supposed to be this example for people um, as a as a starting point. So, and and back to Rewild or Die, just real quick. So, what what exactly what what do you want people to get out of this now that you've you've re released it? What is the big picture out of Rewild or Die that you want people to really get? Other than, I mean, is it that right there that you, you're trying to break down the barriers for everyone so that they can enter, you know, more into uh, deeper levels of rewilding or just a, a, a paradigm shift? What, what was your main reason? Maybe, um, writing it to begin with was, I guess, just you trying to get the, the word out right through yeah. urban scout, through your muse in that way. And now that you've kind of matured, how, how do you look back and, and what, what do you want people to get out of rewild or die? Yeah, I think, um, Putting it back, putting it back out in the world now is important to me because of the lack of understanding the breadth and depthness of rewilding, and I see, uh, I see people taking it on this superficial level, and it's frustrating to me as somebody who went all the way down the rabbit hole and is still going down the rabbit hole um, to figure that out, and so I feel like it's a disservice to not have it available when I think it's greatly needed and the rewilding community is, in my opinion, suffering without that understanding of deafness, without that understanding of um, just how deep it really goes. And the breaking down of barriers and all of that stuff that I've just kind of been talking about now, that's what I'm working on now. None of that stuff is really in the book. Mm -hmm. The book is about, the book is really about how to, take the lens of rewilding and look at the world through that lens. Instead of just thinking rewilding is this, this uh, thing that you, that you're consuming. It's actually a way of viewing the world. Mm -hmm. So the whole point of rewild or die is to put on the lens of rewilding and then examine all these different cultural elements, all these different things through that lens to get people to understand the depth of the lens itself. So, you know, the book is, the, all of the chapters are framed such and such versus rewilding. Mm -hmm. So the idea behind that wasn't that those things are in contrast to rewilding necessarily so much as what does this look like through the lens of rewilding? So, you know, what does agriculture look like through the lens of rewilding? What does civilization look like through the lens of rewilding? What do primitive skills look like through the lens of rewilding? What does permaculture look like through the lens of rewilding and so forth? Um, and a lot of it was topical for the time, you know, like he, you mentioned my hipsters versus rewilding chapter. Um, you know, hipster meant something. It's funny reading that hipster meant something different 10 years ago when I wrote that than it does now. Uh, hipster now means kind of just like yuppie. Uh, back then hipster was like starving artist, uh, pretentious starving artist. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now it's pretentious yuppie. Uh, there you go. 
it's weird that how those things, you know, swing back and forth and change. So I read that chapter and I thought maybe I should take this one out of the book, but it's funny and you know, whatever. I, I like it in there for the lightheartedness of it. But, um, to me, the, the point of it was to just look at the world through that lens and get enough of those little bits so that people would be able to put on the lens of rewilding for themselves and be able to look at other things. You know, uh, people ask me, why don't you do, a uh, you know, gender versus rewilding? And I'm like, well, I, I don't think I have the authority to have that, to, to talk about that topic. Cause I don't know anything about it. You know, I have mm -hmm. friends who are gender queer who would probably write a much better, uh, rewilding versus gender article and probably have since then, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So I was really writing, you know, topically for what I could understand in a way that was as general as I could possibly make it. Um, although it was still, uh, not quite the broadest appealing voice, <laughs> uh, considering, you know, my car was totaled and, and I received hate mail and things like that. Um, but I think the way I'm going about things now is very different than I went about as urban scout. And I think urban scout was, um, I don't want to say an idealist because I really hate that. I feel like using that word is similar to like using the word radical where it's belittling or condescending in a way. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I don't, I still have all of the same feelings that I had as urban scout. I just know more now. I see more of the picture than I did then. And that picture is that there are fucking walls and cages that were in a cage, you know, and that it wasn't as easy as I maybe thought it was going to be to break out of that cage. And so that's why now what I'm looking at is collective, uh, you know, how to create collective energy and power to dismantle those walls, because that's the only thing that's actually going to get rid of them. And that's not something that Urban Scout, that, that was not even in my peripheral or Urban Scout's peripheral back then. Um, okay. That's, and you pretty much, that, that's what I was going to ask too, is, is if you could go back and you could actually talk to Urban Scout, you know, after that moment that you had spoken to that gentleman on the street, you know, what, what would you tell him? You know, if, if you had that perspective that you do now, and then after seeing that gentleman so excited and, and, and you being so fired up, about rewilding, what would you actually say to yourself right then? <laughs> well, I don't know. I feel like it's a, no matter what I would have said, it, I wouldn't have been able to hear it, mm -hmm. you know, because there's a, uh, there's a process that I think we have to go through in order to get to the next level. And I think when somebody communicates something to you, that's kind of not in your vision, you're not quite ready to hear it yet. And so absolutely, I, I don't think I would have been able to fully grasp then what I can grasp now. And I'm sure in 40 years, there will be things that I have no fucking concept of right now that are crazily important to this process. Um, and I think there are certain people who just continue to scrape away, continue to dig deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, and that's kind of what I, I feel like I'm one of those people. And then there's other people who just continue to sort of scrape the surface and keep going all around the surface. And that's okay because, you know, it's just a different strategy. They're, they're going to go far and wide and they're going to funnel people to the, 
you know, if we're looking at it, down to the people who are going deeper, right. you know, like we, we need all those people. Of, you know, every time I go deeper, I'm churning it up. So I'm bringing it up to the top and then eventually that's going to become topical as well. So my idea behind re-releasing the book is to make this idea of rewilding as a lens with, through which to view the world the main thing that people see or think of when they hear of rewilding. Right now, the efforts to do that are uh, – I'm trying to actually merge conservation rewilding and human or anarcho-primitivist rewilding because I think really in the end they need to be the same thing. It is all it one thing. Yeah, I mean that's how that's how I view it too. It's not again, we're we're you know, we're not trying to like what happens, you know, in supplements for example, you know, you're you're not supposed to be taking individual nutrients from whatever it is or synthesizing or any that's just totally. not how the body does it. That's just not how you accept it naturally. Right. So that and that's how it is with rewilding. It's it's holistic. You know, exactly. and it, and that's really what I guess, you know, and I would love to have you on. I know we're getting close to time. I would love to have you on again to talk about different aspects of this, you know, so that we can go deeper into yeah. exactly what this means. Because I'm with you and that's exactly what I, I want this podcast to be about is for people to understand that this isn't about going back in time. It's about looking at history and then looking at history through an evolutionary lens so that we can make better or more informed decisions about our health, our fitness, uh, our so, uh, social ties with other people, and more importantly, our environment with the things around us. How, do, how can we become more connected? Because when you do this, you feel more alive. And I think that's, uh, I just got done uh, doing this uh, movement training with Rafe Kelly. And he does, you know, talks about natural movement and human yeah. movement, if you're familiar with his work. That's awesome. And he talks about this sense of being alive. And I think that's really what it comes down to. It's about feeling alive and connected. And the culture that we're in is very much alienating. Totally. You know? And I think that's what it is, is we're all starting to, like, I remember when 2000, you know, everybody was like, oh, there's going to be this awakening, this consciousness awakening that's going to be happening. I think it was people just realizing that they're becoming more disconnected. You right. know, it was just this thing where, okay, well, you know what? Uh, you know, like being outside and getting into nature and this paleo thing is like great and all because it's actually just spurring people to the idea. Like I, I love that. And there's going to be people like you and I who are willing to go to the next step. And those are the people that we need. And I think as long as that you're here with this word, with rewild or die, I mean, definitely pick this book up. This is amazing. Uh, it, I mean, I'm, I'm going to buy more and I'm going to give it out to the audience because awesome. I think, uh, more people need this in their hands just because it's, it's so accessible. It's easy to understand. You get it when you read it. It's like he said, it's, it's, I don't know. It's like, it's almost like bullet points. Like I could just open it up and be like, man, there we go on civilization. <laughs> it's, it's really convenient. And, um, so again, before we wrap things up, maybe, uh, you could tell the audience again, what, um, where they can reach you, what things you have going on, yeah. uh, how they can get connected, all that good stuff. And, uh, yeah. So, uh, rewildportland.com. That's, uh, my local nonprofits website. We're doing our major fundraiser right now. So if you're feeling inspired after this and want to help kind of support this micro macro vision of rewilding and, and setting an example for other people to mimic, um, please check out our website. And if you're encouraged, uh, Feel, feel encouraged to donate, I, I would recommend that. Um, urbanscout.org is my website, 
and uh, there's lots of ancient articles in there. I don't blog too much anymore, but there's some good content there. Um, and then rewild.com is our online forum for discussing rewilding. It's the, like I mentioned earlier, it's 10 years of conversations. There's archives, just search the archives for anything that you might uh, find interesting or, or if you want to look through the lens of rewilding at something and you haven't thought about it before, type that something in there and it might come up. Um, and most chances are it will. Um, so yeah, rewildportland.com, rewild.com. <laughs> and can they reach you on any social networks? Uh, yeah, I'm on Facebook, Peter Michael Bauer. Feel free to friend me. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't use Twitter too much. And then, of course, Instagram, Rewild Portland, as well as Peter Michael Bauer. Okay. Well, awesome. Peter, again, thank you so much, man. Um, thank you. I, I plan on keeping the conversation open, and I would love to have you back on the show. I'd love to be back. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Ancestral Health Radio. If you like the podcast, do me a quick favor and head over to iTunes to leave an honest rating and review of the show. In this way, you not only help show your support, but you help us spread the word and place us higher in the rankings. If you can't do that, then share this episode on your favorite social media network or continue the conversation with the tribe and myself on the Ancestral Health Radio Facebook page. But remember, be sure to check out all the resources mentioned earlier in this episode by reading the show notes at AncestralHealthRadio.com.